Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Mimi Hillenbrand from 777 Bison Ranch in Rapid City, South Dakota. And we're going to be looking really, really broadly, as well as somewhat deeply today in our conversation, uh, particularly at uh, this combination of, of thinking, or perhaps it's more of a continuum of thinking, uh, that includes holistic grazing practices as a way to regenerate ecosystems and soils and, and the plants that grow upon them, but also working with the local native indigenous uh, wildlife and animal plant systems, et cetera, because obviously we're talking about bison and we're talking about the uh, South Dakota uh, plains. So Mimi, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's, I'm really, really happy that you were able to, to make the, the interview today. And um, now you told me a couple minutes ago that you had just barely escaped a fairly sizable grass fire. Um, so that gives some, some extra sort of sweetness to, to a, a Thanksgiving Day conversation. Um, is, is, is this part of the overall environmental uh, context in which you're working with on the short grass prairie? Well, you know, fire, the prairies evolved with fire because there's always bad lightning storms and then the Native Americans started fires way back when. So we don't really promote fire as a tool, but um, I'm anxious to see what happens on this particular piece that was burned because it wasn't a super hot fire. So it burned through because it was windy and it just laid down all, we have a really good layer of litter. So if we could get some moisture, I'm really anxious to see what will happen this spring when, um, when we get, <clears throat> when we warm up and the moisture hits us. Yeah, because as you said, native, native tradition or native traditional management did include fire. And I, I know from the many years that I've been uh, involved with and following um, ecological regeneration practices that very often part of restoring uh, a system to a, a native grassland will involve fire on a, on a scheduled use. But you say that's not something that's actually part of your own management uh, strategy. You know, we don't use fire. Fire is a very tricky thing. And, and even though the gentlemen I work with are all volunteer firefighters, you know, you've got to be concerned about your neighbors and, and it getting out of control. But fire is a very valuable tool. And in many places, it's, you know, it's important. And we, ha we had a fire, oh, probably 17 years ago that burnt like 5,000 acres on our ranch. And that's been really interesting to monitor over over the years. But yeah, it's not part of our goal and it's not part of our chance to use fire, but you know, it did happen. So now we got a wonderful thing to monitor over the next year. Yeah, I guess an extra piece of learning there. Um, just, just to help orient our listeners, could you give a, a sense of what the short grass prairie biome is about? 
and how that might differ from uh, a common, a common um, image that many people may carry about prairie being, for instance, up to your waist in grass. Well, we're in short grass prairie, so we don't have those beautiful images of, you know, the grass hitting the belly of a horse as, you know, back at the turn of the century. However, if we do have a really good year of moisture, a couple of our grasses can get almost to the belly of a horse. But um, our average moisture is about between 14 and 18 inches of moisture a year, but we're also prone to seven year droughts, which I think we're entering one of those periods currently. But, um, you know, the short grass prairie evolved with bison and prairie dogs and antelope and a variety of wildlife, which we definitely try to promote. But um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but uh, it's a brittle environment. And, and we don't have the best soils in the world. So you really have to plan and monitor and hopefully, hopefully do the right thing to keep it, keep it alive and growing. Yeah, well, that's, I think that is an important distinction because part of what allows the, the tall grass prairie to reach such proportions is the depth of the soil, or at least the classic depth you know, pre, pre-industrial agriculture. Um, and so, so the moisture regime that you've got, is that fairly uh, winter-based or is it, is it um, spread more evenly around the year? Does a lot of it come in snow, for instance? No, you know, our winters out here, we could have a blizzard one day and the next day it's 70 degrees. So in our winters currently, we get, we get some snow, but we, and I love to get snow and moisture in the fall, but most of our moisture comes in the springtime, you know, in in May and June and where we get big thunderstorms. And if we do get moisture in the fall, that will carry us through winter. (laughs) And then when we have um, with snowpack, it's, it's, you know, it, it just helps stay in the soil and helps us through the summer. So we're not right. a big snow person. You know, up in North Dakota and the eastern part of South Dakota, they tend to get more snow than, than we do. We're con- kind of considered the banana belt of the Dakotas with the Black Hills kind of diverting. We have interesting weather patterns. Okay. And um, you, you mentioned there earlier about uh, working with the bison and, and the, other, um, the other local wildlife and uh, the way that that land has responded to, to bringing them back in. Um, I, was, I was just going through the, some of the profile on, on your website there, and um, you mentioned that the, the ranch has been in production something like 40 years, and for 30 of those, it's been in bison. Um, yep. How long? How long has that? Did Did you start in with the holistic management at the time that you brought in the bison, or was that something you introduced more recently? Well, no. You, you know, we my family bought the ranch back in the seventies, and we we ran cattle, and then in the eighties we introduced our first bison, and at the same time, Alan Savory came out with what you know, back in the eighties was called the Savory system, which has evolved into holistic management. And when we did make the turn to to so only um, bison instead of cattle and got to listen to Alan Savory, it just really resonated to all of our goals that we were setting with bringing in bison, trying to regenerate the grasslands. And it just, it made so much sense to us. And it was kind of, it kind of gave us a roadmap of how we could make our goals a reality. Maybe you could take a couple minutes here to give us a quick lesson on the, the principles of holistic management and um, any considerations that you may have in particular for its application in your particular environment. Well, holistic management is it's a way of making decisions based on the goals that you set for your your visions for your land. And when we went into bison, you know, we wanted to bring back the prairie, bring back a native species to help us do that. And um, holistic management helped us do that. It, it taught us a way to manage our grazing, plan our grazing, monitor our grazing, monitor, 
you know, the plants and make sure that we were on the right road. And um, the beauty th beautiful thing about it is, especially now that, you know, there's a more of awareness that, you know, without healthy soils, you can't have healthy grasslands in turn, you can't have healthy animals. Well, it, fit, it totally fit into our vision in bringing back wildlife, you know, more plant diversity, native plant diversity, and we got to use a native animal to help us do it and be profitable and to be able to continue in the future. So by, by following the principles of holistic management, setting our goals, and it taught us how to make those goals a reality. Does that make sense? That makes sense to me. Uh, you'd mentioned something also about the fact that holistic management is actually, it's a way of thinking. It's not just a grass management strategy. Exactly. Uh, maybe you could bring us through some of the way in which that manifests in your operations and your planning and your strategies. Well, holistic management, it, it, it encompasses everything. It, it, it's plants, animals, people, finance. Um, it's, it's a whole and, um, you got to ask me your question again. I, I, I'm thinking of holistic management and then I've totally lost track. So, okay. So if I picture holistic management, I'm picturing paddocks of, of whatever size is appropriate for the stock and for the, for the terrain. Right. Um, and, and that you're basically uh, confining the grazers into a space, which is just the right size. So they eat it fairly evenly they're not just you know, selecting out the tastiest bits and letting everything grow rank around that. And when they've eaten it down to you know, the, the optimal level, you shift them over to the next one and allow this, the first one to recover. And that you go through a cycling, again, dependent on the stock and dependent on the terrain and, and the particular part of the world you might be operating in, there's a, a, a timing for that cycle. Um, so that's, that's it's, and, and this regenerates soil as well as optimizing nutrition. Um, but when you talk about, for, for instance, applying holistic thinking to finance, what would that look like operationally? You know, it's, it's kind of, the way they have it set up is, it's kind of like planning your grazing. Uh, you, you have a chart and in, and you make your financial decisions based on your goals and visions. So say I want to, you know, regenerate the grassland. So every decision I make financially say, all right, am I going to hay? Am I not going to hay? Is that going to contribute or take away from that decision? And so you run it through their decision-making questions to say, is it going to be, profitable for us? Is it going to allow us to live our vision and live the life we want? Is it going to help the grasslands? And if any of those, if, if, if you answer no to any one of those questions and you know, then you know what, haying's not for us and we're not going to do it, which that is a, is a, a true example that we did do um, only about four years ago when we decided, what are we doing with this haying? It's costing us money. It's you know, it's not fitting our vision of, you know, <clears throat> protecting wildlife because you hay during sage grouse, not sage grouse, we have sharp-tailed grouse, their nesting time. So you're, you know, hitting their nest and you're not promoting, you know, our sharp-tailed grouse population. So when we ran through all those questions and it was costing us money because it was time and, and you're putting in diesel and resources and machinery repairs. So... So quitting haying made perfect sense with our holistic decision-making and it cut, you know, it financially, it made a huge difference, it, you know, cut a huge expense out of our, out of our budget. And, um, and it allowed us to make our pastures even more um, smaller so we could even get more production off that land. So we could, take all that hay money and put it into more infrastructure into, you know, building our production and helping, helping the land re restore itself. Something that really impresses me about what you're doing at triple seven is the commitment that you've, that's clear on, on your website, but if you've also brought it up at least four times in the few minutes we've been talking already, which is this, this larger vision of returning 
the the land itself but the wildlife that persists upon it or that depends upon it the entire system the, the interlinked system back to a level of 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 not just productivity in terms of economy human economy but productivity in terms of natural abundance and health um the, the most recent thing you, you you just said was about the sharp-tailed grouse and uh you know weighing that decision on on whether or not you're going to disturb their nesting uh, i just find that very very impressive um in terms of the transition that you made from from running cattle or that the ranch made from running cattle uh, to introduction of the, of the bison and then shifting over to the point where the bison actually became the primary uh, production um, and, and economic activity on the land. Were there initially, were there uh, like slumps in the income and you know, hiccups in the process as, as you kind of finesse those systems? There's always hiccups and there's always there's always challenges that you have to overcome. Um, when we first went to 100% bison, it was such a new thing and people, our neighbors didn't like it, you know, because they're wild animals and of course they're hard on, on fences. And so we had a lot of our neighbors were not happy with us. I considered that a huge hiccup because, you know, bison, if they want to go somewhere, they're going to go somewhere. It doesn't matter what kind of fencing you have. They, they will go wherever they want. So you had to train them to stay within the boundaries of our ranch too. So <clears throat> that was a huge thing at the very beginning was, you know, educating our neighbors and, you know, trying to build good relationships with our neighbors, which was hard when we switched to the, to bison. And also, you know, when, trying to figure out this whole holistic management. How do we do the paddocks right? How do we make it big enough, small enough to, you know, promote their wildness? You know, one thing that's important to us is we want to protect the integrity of the bison. I do, you know, we don't want to domesticate it. So how do you, how do you protect that integrity on a set acreage? It was, it was a challenge and it still is a challenge, but um, that was, that was another huge, huge thing for us to overcome. And we're still working on that. And I don't know, is I'm sometimes I feel like I'm not answering your questions, particularly the way you want them to. But when, when I hear hiccups, these were the hiccups. And then, you know, at the beginning, prices were horrible for bison. Then they were unbelievably high because everybody, you know, was exotic. It was trendy it was this new thing to do so a lot of people got into it and the prices were crazy and then people didn't have a way to take care of their animals so then the market dropped out and you couldn't even give away a buffalo calf and that was a huge challenge you know how do you stay in the industry when the bottom breaks out and you know cattle people i think go through this every year hoping to get a good price and then the price drops but you know, now everybody wants bison meat. So the bison industry, it's, it's strong and it's good. So, you know, we've overcome a lot of, of challenges like that. Did you ever feel it, it in the early days, like it wasn't going to work out or it wasn't going to be worth it? Oh, absolutely. It's just like, okay, how are, how are we going to weather this storm? And do we stay, do we stay in the industry? Do we believe in it? And, you know, we, we jumped in with both feet and we believed in the animal and we believed in, you know, our holistic, our holistic context. And, um, we weathered the storm. It was not easy. And, you know, we had, we took a lot of, a lot of kicks, but it's now it's really proving well for us. I mean, the market now, everybody wants to know where their food comes from and that you're taking care of the land and you humanely, treat your animals and you know the everybody wants a story and our story i think is is a really beautiful one and consumers like it and now that people want bison meat because of the story of the bison and you know trying to restore land um it's a good strong market and and, and we're in a very good place right now and i hope we can continue to do that you mentioned that um your dna test 
the, the, the herd. Mm -hmm. um, I pretty much guarantee 99% of our listeners will have no idea why that's necessary. Yeah, especially because it's a wild, wild animal. Um, yeah. My dream for the DNA testing is there are a lot of historic bison DNA out there from Yellowstone to Teddy Roosevelt National Park to Wind Cave National Park to the original Goodnight Herd down in Texas. There, there are all these little pockets of historic genetics from many years, you know, hundreds of years ago where bison, you know, would develop these herds. And those genetics are really, really important to me. And, and I think you need to have we're not like the cattle industry where you can go from farm to farm and get different genetics in the bison world is kind of a tricky thing because they are wild. And so for us, our dream is to bring in these historic genetics and, and keep them alive. And at the same time, you know, building a really keeping the bison as bison, our, our goal is keeping the integrity of the animal and, and preserving all those historic genetics. So, over the years, we have we we so far we're we're doing really well with getting some of these historic genetics. We just down in Caprock <clears throat> State Park in Texas, which has the original Goodnight herd. Which, if you're familiar with that, that is when the bison there were only a few thousand head left. Mister Goodnight you had a small herd, and it was one of the herds that brought the bison back from the brink of extinction. And so they just had a, their first auction this past month in October, and we actually won the, won the auction. And so we are getting eight of those bulls next week. So I'm very excited to get those genetics because they're, they're classic, they're historic and, you know, they're, they're, they're the genetics that we were really excited to get and be able to be one of the first people to get those. But if I can get some Yellowstone animals, that'll be great too. But, uh, you know, I've got some wind cave. I got a lot of the historic ones, but there's still more I can get. But Yeah, because when you, when you have a species so reduced as the bison were right on when they were, you know, on the edge of tipping into extinction, we've got this, this uh, genetic bottleneck effect that happens. And um, the, I mean, with the rhinoceros um, and, and, and a number of other species yeah. that they're, they're trying to recover, they're running into this, this issue. Well, cheetah is, is, is one of the ones that I think is fairly well known by biologists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the world population of cheetah is so small that they're incredibly inbred. And all these genetic, um, you know, weaknesses are, are appearing. And it's, possible that even if the numbers of the of the remaining cheetah can be maintained that their severely reduced genetics will make them go extinct anyway so interesting that uh, i because I, I think you know, maybe between the bison and the wild turkey two of the most phenomenal stories of recovery of a species uh, across huge areas of range in north america um right and it's interesting to hear about the Goodnight Herd, but does that then imply that there were also little clusters in other parts of, of North America um, sort of at that maximum contraction point? Absolutely. Like Yellowstone is the big one, which I'm sure you've heard about all the controversies with Yellowstone animals, but um, yeah. there were definitely little pockets spread throughout the, the West of the United States. And that's, those are the genetics I really am trying to get. And so little by little, we're getting them. Um, also, you know, what did help the bison <clears throat> not go extinct was they were using cattle. So one of the big issues for us is to get the cattle genetics out of our herd. Um, it's, the cattle genes in, in bison in the United States, um, it's less than 1%, but for us, it's really important to get those cattle genes out of our herd. And we only have, I think, 13 animals that have the cattle genes still in, in them. And as they get older, we'll weed them out. But for us, it's important to get those historic genes. Yeah, I guess, I guess most people wouldn't even realize that, that, that cattle and bison might be compatible that way. Well, they're both bovines, and I mean, a bison looks like a bison, so in, in less than 1% cattle genetics, when you really think about it, that's not very much. 
And what about the, um, I had heard that there was introgression um, from some of the Canadian wood bison. Is that it, possibly just the Yellowstone situation or do you know um, more about that? You know, I, I am not an expert on that. Like woods bison are from Northern Canada and that in Canada and Alaska area. And I'm sure at points throughout the evolution of bison, there was some crossbreeding because plains bisons went north and woods bisons came south. But I am, you know, I am not an expert on that. I know that none of my animals have wood bison genetics in them, but, mm -hmm. but, I'm, but I'm sure there are some that are crossed. It, I think that's very probable, but I am not an expert on that. Uh, does the, the presence of that 1% of cattle DNA, does that actually come up in terms of anything behavioral or, or even phenotypically in, in terms of the form of the, of the animal, or is this more something kind of on, on basic principle? It's just historic. There, there, there's no behavior differences. I mean, a bison is a bison. It's just one teeny thing that's kind of hidden in their DNA. And, but no, they don't look like a cow. They don't act like a cow. They're, they're definitely, bison <laughs> cool um it, it's most of your uh, the ranch's income at this point does it come from selling the meat or is it still uh you selling live animals to other ranches you know we were in the meat business a long time ago well we, we just quit four years ago we got out of the meat business so no we just actually we just had our annual production sale last saturday and basically we're, we just sell live animals uh-huh and your, your classic is there a typical customer or is there all sorts of stripes you know what there's all kinds and this year even more so than last year our bison went all over the united states it, it, there's a lot of new players and people doing all kinds of great things. You know, some people want them for meat animals. Some people need new genetics for their herds. Um, it was really, it was really interesting to see where these animals went this year. And I was really happy that most of them were going to go into breeding programs. So I'm glad that our genetics are getting out there and we're getting respected about, you know, what we do on the triple seven. So it was a really good sale. And, um, just happy my animals are getting out there and mixing their genes with others. So it's good stuff. You do some work there with education as well, do you? We, we do. Um, we try to put on holistic management seminars because, you know, it works for us and, and we've made such great strides in bringing back our biodiversity and building soil. And, um, you know, we just want people to know that it does work and, uh, and one of the, so we do put on several of these holistic um, intro seminars for people. And this year was really an interesting one because we got brought in a lot of um, Native American bison producers. And we had brought in bison producers. So we were, now we're building that gap between Native American producers and I, I call them gringo producers. So that's we're kind of, beautiful. Yeah, we're, we're bridging the gap. And so, you know, and we can each teach each other. So, yeah, we're, we're pretty proud and we get school kids out and we do a lot of good things with the community. That was, that was actually my next, my very next question I wanted to ask you was about your, your relationship with, with the tribes, with the Native American producers, because um, to me, that's like an, an essential ingredient of this whole picture. Well, you know, for us, it is too, because, you know, we live in the heart of, you know, Sioux country out here. And, you know, my parents started a store called Prairie Edge, which works a lot with Native American artists and Native American people. So when we got into bison, it kind of fit in with the whole Prairie Edge thing and, and, for us to build relationships with Native Americans was always a huge, huge thing for us. And if we can help Native American bison producers, that is even better. And they can help us. I mean, their story is just as important as our story. And 
I'm really excited that finally we're starting to bridge that gap and, and start bringing them into our world and they're bringing us into their world. I actually just spoke at the Intertribal Bison Co-op's annual conference two weeks ago. And it's just, it's really exciting time because we both have wonderful things to teach each other. And I learn every day from, from everybody, but it's, I, I, working with Native Americans is very important to us. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind and Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M I N D A N D M E D I A.com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're chatting with Mimi Hillenbrand from Triple Seven Bison Ranch. Oh, by the way, if you're listening to this and you go to 777 Bison Ranch, Dot com, you'll not only find a whole lot more background information and uh, information on how you can contact Mimi and the, and the folks at the ranch, but there's a whole series of video clips there that uh, will, I think, really interest you equally. Um, and as I was going through those, those clips to refresh my memory before we started the interview here, one of the themes that came up pretty regularly was, um, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll give you some quotes that, that popped out of that, that to me really seemed like they exemplified a, a way of thinking that I find both inspiring and important. Um, you talk about the, the way the ranch is being managed as a partnership with nature. Uh, you talk about it as a living classroom. Um, you, talk, you talk about managing the grass and that the buffalo just manage themselves. And you also talk about Buffalo being a part of the team. Uh, could you go into some of that perspective with us a little bit? Well, I, I, I love our partnership with nature because for us, it's, it's more than just bison. And they, they're, they really are team players with us. We, they're the ones who graze the grass. We manage them and, they help us manage the grass. And, and so um, <clears throat> I got to get back on track here. Um, you know, by monitoring our grass, we use, we use the bison to help us. Um, ah, I'm off track. Sorry. Okay. I'll give you the quote again. We manage the grass, the Buffalo manage themselves. Right. So we plan our grazing according to, you know, what, what we learned in holistic management. So we, the, the way that bison graze the grass and how we plant it helps us. We give plants enough time to recover by planting or grazing. We get the animals in there and they defecate and urinate and their hoofs turn up the grass and we get some litter laid down. And so we're promoting, we're building that soil, we're promoting grass growing, we're getting seeds in the ground and with a good seed bed. And, you know, the bison are doing that for us. So we don't have to do it. We just have to move them at the right time and give the, the grass time to uh, regenerate. And by doing that and timing it, in some pastures, we actually reduced our native, our introduce species of grass by timing when we have our bison in there and that is allowing our native grasses to come back so really we just let bison do what bison do best and as long as we move them and monitor the grass you know we have brought back so much diversity in our in our grasses and built soil in the in the process and that i think it, at least in terms of the the theme for this series, you know, the, the designers of paradise and, and the, the deep look into what's happening with regenerative. Um, that really 
is fundamental. I, I suppose it's physically, literally fundamental as well. But right. uh, you know, that, that recovery of the soil system, because we know that everything is based upon rebuilding healthy soil. Um, and that, that sense that of truly partnering with the animals, um, and I guess by extension with the entire ecosystem, it's one of the really beautiful aspects, I think, that characterizes everybody who's been drawn into shifting their practice over to, to regenerative. And, and such a contrast from the prevailing still um, more manipulative system of agricultural production, um, which is well, attempting to force nature to produce basically to our, to our demands. Right. And, and, and instead of, you know, you know, everything's in the soil. It's just waiting for the right opportunity or given the opportunity to come back. So all of these native seeds and are in the ground. So if you can knock back those non-native species who, you know, are invasive and they want to jump in there and they kind of knock back these native species that take a little more care and time, um, you know, give them a chance and they'll come back. And it's, it's truly amazing what we have done over 30 years. And, and just as an example, we brought in a team from Wisconsin, ecological, applied ecological services to do an overall health of our ranch. And it took a year to get the study done, but we in 30 years, we built almost six inches of soil in some places. And, and compared to our neighbors, we have almost double the amount of native species of grass that we have brought back. Um, those two bit things were the biggest, most awesome thing to learn from that study. And, uh, and so we're, you know, we're sequestering carbon and we're doing good things. But just knowing that we built that much soil in that short of a time, when you think how long it really takes to make soil, and we actually were... We, we built inches of soil in, in 30 years, just by the way we take, we graze our animals, we plan our grazing, we let, let give the plants time to recover. I mean, I think that's a huge thing and that we had twice as many native species of grass than, than our neighbors who do traditional grazing. Um, I think that's pretty, pretty amazing and pretty wonderful. I say so. I mean, it's, talk about indicators, right? Indicators of success, um, indicators that you're doing the right thing in the right way. Uh, that's incredibly um, reassuring as, as, as well as uh, convincing for anybody else who might be looking in there. But well, you know, this, does this really pay off to, to take this holistic strategy? Um, and the other great thing is, is, you know, they did water infiltration studies too. And just by building the soil and putting litter on the soil, our water infiltration was off the roof. And our soil now can hold moisture. It was pretty amazing how deep, when we did do that study, how deep our moisture was in our soil compared to some of our neighbors doing the more traditional type of grazing. So... Instead of that water running off, we know it's going down and we know our roots are getting down there and um, we've got good, healthy plants. And, it's in, and we don't have the best soils here in western South Dakota. So even that, that's kind of a challenge too. But, you know, we're doing it and we've got healthy animals, healthy soil and healthy plants. So it's good stuff. You know the way that the, like the classic farmer is always looking over the fence to see why the neighbor's grass is greener? Right. Have, have some of these studies, uh, for instance, the increase in, in soil depth and the in, increase in water retention, have, have, has that spread to your neighbors? I mean, are, they, are, they, are you finding stronger interest or more, uh, more willingness to think about taking up the holistic strategy based on this kind of um, measurement? You know... That's a, that's a very good question, but you cannot change mindset. And unless you want to really change the whole way you're thinking and change your paradigms and everything, it, it's hard to convince somebody. It either resonates with you or it doesn't. And 
when you look at some some of our neighbors who have been doing this for generation and generation, you know, to change that way of thinking, I, you're not going to do it unless it's unless they really really want a change. But yeah, they, when they're when they're mind. sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say when a person is ready. And they've made that decision on an emotional basis because that's, I believe, how we make our decisions. Um, and then evidence is brought in to sort of bolster that, right? So maybe you're thinking like, I'm really intrigued by this other way of managing and I'd really like to try that on my land. Then looking for that evidence, then looking at those numbers and going, wow, it actually increased soil depth. Wow, look at the difference in the water retention. Look at the number of species being supported. Look at you know, a, whole, a whole list of different, of different factors. Those can then be used to bolster a decision which you've actually made in your heart, but you now need to sort of nail it into place with your head. That's, so very, that's very true, but it also takes time. And a lot yeah. of people want a quick fix and they don't want to take the steps for that's going to take a long time to do it so. which brings me around to something else that you had um you had said somewhere about this being your life journey and so that that idea that it's about legacy and I think it's also about something that I believe is very, very important for uh, not just regenerating soils, but regenerating community, um, which is making a commitment to place. And particularly when I speak with, with younger people um, in a very, very mobile generation, I, I sometimes worry about the fact that if we're going to restore land, if we're going to recover our planet, our living planet, and its ability to, to continue on, we really need people to make commitment to place so that they are going to stay there and they're going to learn it and they're going to love it and they're going to work with it. And that was something that, that really struck me was uh, your statement that you see this as your life journey. I'm so lucky because I'm living my dream. And, and ever since I can remember, I always wanted to live out West and be on the land and ride horses and fix fence. I mean, that I'm one of the luckiest people in the world to be living my dream. And I tell everybody I have the best office in the world and it's a classroom because I learn every day when I'm out there. The one thing I can say too is, you know, there are a lot of young people who I love the awareness now there that there's a lot of young people who want to get into ag but they don't have access to land and you know it's not like they're part of the ranching community and yet there are a lot of young people who just what you're saying want that opportunity to have a sense of place and to do something good on the land but how do you get into ag if you do not come from an ag family and um we're mentoring a young girl right now who I think would be, I want her in the bison industry and she's very much into holistic management and regenerating grasslands and working with bison. And so how do you, I'm, I'm just learning how to be a mentor and it's, it's very challenging because it's like, okay, I can help you learn about bison and how to be a bison rancher, but you need to figure out, be creative how to find a way that you're going to get land. I, I will run these animals for you, but um, how do you, how do you help these young people get, get into, into the ag business? It's, it is such a challenge and I love being a mentor, but how do you, how do you help them find land? You know, that's, how do you help them find the place, like you say, to be, to be, put their roots in and take care of it. It's, it's a challenge. And I think mentoring is a wonderful thing, but we got to find a way to help those young people get on the land because there's definitely an interest right now. 
Yeah, um, and this is this is one of the big questions and, and one of the one of the screaming needs out there. Um, I had a really good conversation a few weeks ago uh, with the Iroquois Valley Farms, uh, which are also based in the Midwest, but a little further east. And um, they've set up a model where they invest in land that comes onto the market um, in order to enable young people to have affordable access to it. And so in some ways it works like a traditional land or a classical land trust, but um, you know, that's just one. And we need, we need one in pretty much every area of, of the United States. Absolutely. Uh, um, what are other, I, I mean, I think that's, that's a model that I think is creative and it's, it's demonstrating that it can be very, very effective and that it can be financially sustainable for everybody. Um, and I, I expect as they gain visibility and they start also mentoring other groups, and I know that's part of their own agenda, that we will see a spreading of a spreading and probably a locally ad adaptation, local adaptation of that as a strategy. But um, other than access to land, are there other challenges that you think are not currently being addressed, which would be really important? For young people? Well, well, maybe for holistic management as, as a, a kind of a strategic undertaking. And I would always say for younger people because they are the coming farmers. They are the coming farmers. I have to say, you know, just in the last five year, the, years, the awareness of holistic management has just taken off compared, and that's worldwide, because I, I do some work in South America too, and and down there, it's just starting to take hold, but there's a lot of really good stuff happening down there with holistic management, actually all over the world anymore, because the word has gotten out. And, you know, like, I'm biased because I know it works, and, and I know that we've done really great things on, on our ranch, That, but there's there are a lot of people in Africa and Australia, South America, doing really good things with holistic management and getting the word out there. And I think, I think there's an awareness and it's going to take off even more because people want to take care of the land. I mean, people want, compared to the 1980s when nobody even heard of regenerative grazing and taking and being sustainable and all that, it was just put your animals out there and grazed. But now people want to take care of it. And then people know that we need to take care of our planet and and this is definitely a, a way that does work and the word is getting out there which gives me a lot of hope so do you think one of the one of the areas that requires more attention would be just this, the education to sort of spread the idea absolutely is it doesn't everything go back to education um yeah. you know without education i actually went back and got my master's just to keep keep up to date with what's what's going on in the ag world and education is is a is so valuable and you got to keep and you got to stay on top of it but education you know even when we were in the meat business we had to educate people about grass-fed meat compared to grain finished meat it, you know you have to educate people in everything yeah, and, and people have to want to be educated. In it. it doesn't come with the package. It always has to be added. That's right. It's you still got to market everything, right? Well, you know, they say that the human the human advantage, you know, the evolutionary advantage over other, well, uh, over other life forms. But I think at this point in time, that's to be questioned. However. But we'll go with we'll go with the argument um, that, that 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 human advantage is cultural. It's not genetic. It's not physical bodily evolution. That we have compensated for our our limitations physically by developing cultural adaptation, right? And and so cultural adaptation depends upon the continuity of education. And I think we forget that. I yep. think we forget that really fast. 
Um, tell me a little bit about the other people on the team there. And I'm particularly interested in how you see them having uh, basically, you know, grown through the process of working um, on the ranch and with the bison. Oh my gosh. I love the gentlemen I work with and all three of them came from different backgrounds. Well, Mort and Cody both came from ranching backgrounds, but they came from hardcore traditional backgrounds and Justin came from, you know, a Midwest farming background, mostly with pigs and things like that so bison was new to him but it took me forever to convince them about holistic management but I tell you now all three of them have bought into it I've sent them to several courses and actually the young guy Cody wants to become a certified instructor so they're just the most amazing men that I've ever had the privilege to work with they it's taken a while to grab a hold but my goodness, they are, they got the bit in the mouth and they are running hardcore and teaching people. And they're just, I, I, they're just the best men ever. We are the, we're a great team and we all bring something different to the table and it's really exciting and we get a lot done. There's a lot of good ideas and, you know, we're pretty much all equal and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I, while to assemble this type of team, but it's a, it's a wonderful thing and they're all young and it's really, it's, it's, it's exciting. And it's, it's been really wonderful to watch them grow and grasp this and really see, you know, they all change their mindset about looking at grass and looking at how to manage things differently than how they were brought up. So. It's such a magic, it's such a magical process, I think. You know, it is a magical process and I can't, you know, when they, all of them first came on board, they just gave me so much grief and they thought I was this tree hugging hippie type. And, um, you know, we joke about it a lot, but, uh, you know, especially more to has worked with me the longest. Um, he came on board when we were in the middle of a seven year drought and he, he, that was when he first started seeing, you know what, there's something to what she's doing out here. And once I started sending them to a few of these holistic management courses, all of a sudden you could see the lights turning on. And, and then before you know it, they're just hardcore advocates like I am. So it's been, it's been a wonderful process to watch. And they're young and they're teaching other young people too that, you know what, it works. It works and you can make a difference. So. That's one of the things I really love about regenerative in general is is that yeah. we re- we regenerate people. I know? was just going to say it's not just yeah. soils and grass, but it's it's people, it's communities, it's you know it 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 yeah, it's a really exciting thing. And it's this sense too of hope, you know. It's like I, I believe that every time we demonstrate success and we open someone's um, willingness to see things a bit differently that there's a little spark there of hope that you can see kindling. And, you know, hope sounds like, um, it sounds like a soft value. But if you turn that around and you ask yourself, would you stay in a situation that was hopeless? You suddenly realize how important that is. Right? So the the ability for these kinds of practices to, to, to regenerate hope in everybody who actually comes into contact with it in some way or another, I think is a phenomenally important aspect. You are, you are a hundred percent right. And, you know, like Cody, he's like, well, you saw it in the video. It's just like, you know, I never thought about grass, you know, it's just like you put the animals out there. He's like, I look at grass so differently now. And, and then you got more who's like, you know, everything I own comes from grass. So, you know, I love seeing how it has resonated with each one of the gentlemen who, who I work with. It's been, it's been a wonderful thing for me. And it's, and like I said, they're teaching people every day. So, and they're teaching young people. Tell me a little bit, and, and then we'll probably wrap this up because I, I don't want to take too much more of your time on the holiday. Um, but tell me a little bit about the planning cycle 
that you guys operate within? Is it, is it a, a year? Is it five years, 20 years? What, what do you see as kind of a unit? Well, we, we like to do a five-year overall ranch plan, but, when it, but then that's broken down. Like we plan our grazing during the growing season and the non-growing season. You know, our, we do a budget every year, but, you know, we try to plan our overall vision is five-year increments. Mm-hmm. Because things change too rapidly to think, you know, 10 years out. I mean, yes, we, we, our, our life vision is let's leave this better for the next generation and how do we get to there? But, you know, thinking, thinking in five-year increments resonates with us. Um, it just makes it more tangible for us to get things done and see where we're going and reevaluate when we need to, um, so we, that's, that's, that's basically how we, how we plan, plan for the ranch. Let me then challenge you out 20 years. Okay. Um, give, me a, give me a sense of what success would feel like and would look like in 20 years. In 20 years, I hope I have... I hope that we have built way more soil. I hope that we will have increased our forage production. I hope we increase our diversity and in how we'll do that is putting in a little more infrastructure, moving our animals in a tighter group. And um, that that's our, that's our vision is, is increasing our, our forage production and quality and can continue to grow, you know, create soil and to continue building, you know, bringing back the diversity of the plains. Uh, it, it, it's huge. And at the same time, building our bison herd. Okay. So that's looking inwards. What if you were to turn around and look outwards? Turn outwards. Yeah. Like your community, you know, right. right. I know. I'm just like, wow. You know, if we could, if we could even get five more ranchers to do what we're doing, I think the world would be a better place. And so that, would, that would look like a job well done. And, you know, if we can reach some of our tribal members, neighbors, even if we just reach one, which I think we already have to us, that's a huge success because him being na- him being a native American he can go out and teach more Native Americans. And, they, and to, to us, that's a huge, huge thing because they are our neighbors. You know, we work with them and we're trying to help them and they're teaching us too. So if we could and reach Native American, sorry, if we could reach the Native American community, I think that would be a huge thing. Well, I'm, I'm aware that, that for a lot of the, the, um, the prairie-based native cultures, the the bringing back of the bison is a hugely significant, um, you know, spiritual and cultural accomplishment. It's not just about um, developing a more sustainable local economy. No, and you know what? The beautiful thing that I saw when I was speaking at that Intertribal Bison Council conference was, you know, there, there now is interest in taking care of the land better and you know it, it's not about raising bison to make money for the tribes it's about all the cultural like you said it's, it's cultural and everything and they realize too that you know we got to take care of the land to take care of the animals and to take care of the people so I think if we can reach out to more of the native peoples I think it, it, it it'll be a job well done for us. Yeah, it's a beautiful regenerative vision. Um, thanks so much for your time, Mimi. Um, the, our guest today was is Mimi Hillenbrand from the Triple Seven Bison Ranch in Rapid City, South Dakota. And if you'd like to find out more, and I'm sure you would, you can go to seven seven seven. That's number sevens, right? Seven 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 bisonranch.com. And you'll find all the contact information there, loads of really good media to look at, and a a nice overview of the operation there. 
So once again, thanks so much, Mimi, and um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Eric, thank you so much. And um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And if you have any more questions, don't hesitate to ask. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.